Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me... Oh, I'm Jay from uh, Filmstrip. Thanks uh, again for having me on, Mike, as we are uh, continuing this little journey through the decades and greatest films of all time that uh, I've at least never seen, and I think uh, they're fresh for you in a lot of ways, too. Yeah, most of these films, as I was going through the list, um, I've either seen them a long time ago, so I'm just kind of considering them... Like my first time viewing them or I've seen them uh, but I feel like it's it's mostly on the side of haven't or it's been a long time since I've seen them um, so now we're in the 1920s and uh, and I think these next two episodes they're nice companion pieces for each other um, because they're going to be uh, we're gonna be talking about very similar people of this uh, silent film era but also vastly different but um but this week we're starting with uh, Buster Keaton's The General. I was surprised that you hadn't seen this film before. This was definitely one of those that I had seen before um, that I remembered seeing because uh, I remember watching this in college because uh, I remember that was definitely during my time of, uh, you know, check, trying to check out these classic films. And that was kind of like the start of my um, my filmmaking or filmmaking, film watching cinema experience. And I remember really enjoying this even at a, when my cinematic language was very elementary so yeah i was surprised that you hadn't seen this before i'm surprised i haven't either because it checks so many boxes that i should be you know in on you know i grew up in the south so civil war you know subject matter in film has been something that i it was just sort of around in my culture and so we you know i I missed it for that and also i'm a big fan of at the time what are considered cinematic disasters or like you know big budget things that are overblown and and you know they they fail in their time like i'm a sucker for that kind of thing and this it's all of that and it's it's one of those that uh you know got reevaluated many many years after the fact um really almost 50 years after it was made before anybody really gave it another look and has now revered and things but in its time i mean it failed and it was it was at the you know, nearing the end of the silent film era um you know we were coming to a different place with film and it changed Buster Keaton's career from there on out because he, after this, he lost all of his independence. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what happened with Michael Cimino after Heaven's Gate, you know, sort of what I related it to and, and uh, you know, the work that, that happened after that. But yeah, I, you know, I'm surprised I'd never seen it either. And also for the big climactic scene, because I feel like that is referenced in so many things, but for whatever reason, I had never seen it. I didn't even know this story. Like I had never heard about it. So I, I did a little deep dig. I didn't read the book or anything like that, but I did look into a little bit of the, the story that it's based off of. And you know, I, I got a little humorous thought to myself that when Buster Keaton decided to do this and adapting it, he didn't think people would believe the Confederates were the villains. So he flipped it because <laughs> it's written from the union perspective. But, and I, I would argue that the, it still works out almost from that perspective, but he, he didn't believe people would think the Confederates were the villains in 1926. And I thought, Oh my gosh, is it really? But I thought, well, it had only been maybe 40 years at that point, 45 years. So I guess it was still fresh for a lot of folks and a lot of, a lot of wounds from, uh, from that era. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I found that to be kind of humorous and a thought. And then just watching this thing, uh, you know, the fact that it's been, preserved in the national film registry and all that. I actually saw a couple different versions of it. I saw one that had like a score that had been laid on it in 1987, 
by Carl Davis, the the British composer. But I went back and I found the the one that um, was synced up with the William Perry 1926 score. And it's on YouTube. Both of those are. And uh, the the one what the Perry score actually looked like had like a great like Blu-ray style transfer. So it looked awesome, you know, and everything. And uh, it was fun to listen to that what I call like saloon style piano, you know, and, and all of that. It's just, I don't know. It was fun with all the title cards and everything, but yeah, uh, kind of, kind of blown away that I had missed this one along the way too. And, you know, we think about the action adventure comedy as just being something that like Ryan Reynolds pops up on randomly on Netflix these days, you know, and it just happened, but these have been going on since the dawn of film time. I think that's important to know because so many of the cues in this one, I feel like get repeated over and over again in cinema history. Yeah, and what was your? Uh, I was curious of what your relationship with uh, specifically Buster Keaton was because I keep I I keep getting him confused, or maybe it, my, in my brain I just keep swapping him out with Harold Lloyd, and I think that's because these guys they were like so as the silent comedians, very physical in their comedy, but they were the more like bombastic, like over the top, yeah, um, like th- these like amazing stunts, especially um, like Buster Keaton in that he would just do these amazing stunts. And I even think like Jackass and Johnny Knoxville, uh, they try and do uh, a lot of inspiration from them. And I think like the, the, um, the falling house is him. Correct. And I always think of like Johnny Knoxville in the end of Jackass two, when they do that and they hit him with a, um, with a, uh, what was it? A like wrecking ball at the end of the, of the second one. But in the outtakes, they said, they told him, do not move because the house will crush you. And then of course he moves and the house crushes him. And I think his daughter was on set. He's like, daddy, why are you an idiot? Yeah. And uh, it's like, but it just goes to show like this, this, that was what, like 2010, 2008, whenever Jackass two was. Mm -hmm. And he was doing this way back in the 1920s and thirties. And, and and I forget which movie it was from when he, uh, he was supposed to jump over uh, like a building and he missed and he missed the landing and he's like oh that's actually funnier and they have this long intricate him like crashing through sunroofs and going through the firehouse and going down mm-hmm. like yeah he was supposed to land that land that and uh he just rolled with it and i think that was like the brilliant brilliance of buster Keaton and even like harold lloyd when they would just do these over-the-top bombastic like death defying stunts and they did it in real time. So like, like in safety, uh, safety last with Harold Lloyd, like them climbing buildings and then them trying to find high rises in, I guess LA or wherever they were filming it. Um, and just using camera trickery to make it look like he was climbing a building like 50 stories up. And I think that's why we remember these guys so fondly is because they really took the, the stunts, the physical comedy to, a next level and and even in a time when you know their safety concerns weren't exactly uh like osha exact wasn't exactly uh on present on the scene so what what's your relationship with like buster keaton what i know about buster keaton comes from you know things that i know about like fatty arbuckle and uh you know charles lloyd that you mentioned is they're part of all that vaudeville comedians that transitioned into film when film became the new medium, you know, and, and he's one of the original parody artists too. the idea of, I'm going to take this situation and then I'm just going to make it absolutely ridiculous. So I'm still going to tell a straight story, but it's a complete farce the whole way through. And, you know, a very pioneering performer in the realm of like physical comedy, 
you know, and there's so many comedians in my lifetime that I grew up watching that did that. Like I, my earliest memories of anything Saturday Night Live, and it happened before I was really, you know, watching that. But as a kid, seeing the reruns of the 70s show and watching Chevy Chase fall off of ladders, you know, and things like that, like just seeing those kind of gags all come from this era of things. And really, you know, the Marx Brothers too. Like they're all part of that same run. But Buster Keaton was one of those that, uh, I discovered later, you know, much long after he was gone, but uh, late, you know, later in as I got to be a teenager and things and started just catching stuff that would be on like AMC or TCM, you know, Turner Classic Movies would run stuff, you know, the early days of AMC before they did Horror Fest ran a lot of this kind of stuff, you know, and I always felt like things that I grew up and attached to, like the Three Stooges and stuff, owed a lot to this style of comedy. And so I'm not as familiar with Buster Keaton's work as maybe some of the, you know, the other folks that came after him or even during the time. But I think he's one of those presents that like I always knew was there and I'd seen some of his stuff, but I don't know that I've ever like purposely watched you know, a lot of his movies from start to finish. In fact, this is the one that I've, I've now seen the most having watched it a couple of times for this. And um, you know, I, the thing about it that, that I, I also think about is it's an era of filmmaking and it really ran for a number of, of years where the artists had so much control over what they're doing. And that really only happens in the independent film realm these days and uh, and always will, obviously, for reasons. But, you know, the studio system changed things. People will try to act like, oh, we're not in the studio system anymore. Like, oh, yes, we are very much. It's just a it's a boardroom and a committee that make uh, make the uh, the studio decisions these days. And uh, I don't know, I but I find him to be a very interesting presence because though he definitely is from his own time, like if you colorized it, Mike, and you just stuck him in a, in a screwball comedy today, like it, I think it would work. Like his whole look is still there. Or maybe that's just how in our culture, everything recycles every few years or so. Yeah. And uh, I love Buster Keaton's just deadpan mm-hmm. throughout the whole, like he, like he is a character is playing everything so straight in this, uh, ridiculous world that like he's created um and it's funny you mentioned colorized version because i did watch uh i watched the amazon prime version of this which was a colorized version which i didn't realize going into it which i was like oh wow this actually looks kind of neat and um it, they i guess they put whoever produced it may put like sound effects in there too but they were clearly like ripped from like some free like archive of sound effects because they were like kind of cheap sounding for the most part like the footsteps were just like i could look up on youtube like footstep noises and it's like and you're like oh okay okay or like um like laughing or it's like this weird like oh like something like we could probably record better on this podcast but it's still i i understood the thought Mm -hmm. and i thought that the colorized version was just so well done that it was like a restored colorized whatever it's it almost reminded me what they did for um like they shall they shall not grow old yeah i was like oh that's kind of neat i mean maybe not as great as that but it was i was like okay this is you know for what it is really good um i was looking at the budget for this movie i think it's crazy that especially for this time i think it was like 75 what was it uh $750,000 was the estimated budget yeah. and i think even like it went over budget and i think didn't a lot of that go towards like the trains oh, yeah. and then yeah. the ending when they just like destroyed a train yeah. and also like the sets they were using miniatures through the through um I think very sparingly, but they still still were using miniatures and to great effect. I think like the dam exploding looked awesome, oh, yeah, even though yeah. you could tell it was a miniature. Um, but that's crazy yeah. that 
they were giving this guy that much money that they trusted him. And, uh, and I always liked looking back of, um, like quote unquote, like cinematic failures at the time, you know, the general, um, I guess in a sense, like, you know, like empire strikes back the thing, especially, you know, the films like that, that the critics got it so wrong, like 2001, Mm -hmm. Uh, a space odyssey like i love watch, looking at these films and, I'm, and i try and look back at like what were they missing i try and put myself in that perspective of like the times or whatever but a yeah, couple, couple differences though like empire strikes back in 2001 made money when they were out they just didn't get the critical acclaim thing didn't make any money the general didn't make any money heaven's gate didn't make any money you know like it didn't make the money could this only made a million dollars worldwide which sounds i mean it made quote a profit but the original budget was 400 grand which is still exorbitant in 19 19- the 1920s right and we were talking about we're in the great depression here man like this we're, we're starting with the crash maybe this is why because investors you know but <laughs> but i mean the fact that he he did this and wrecked an actual train you know at the end of this thing is unbelievable I mean, he had the, the the ability to you know basically take out a bridge the whole town took the day off of work to co- or got the day off work, and they just declared it a holiday to come watch it because they were going <laughs> to blow this bridge with this train coming across it. Because I thought, like, oh, that's got to be some incredible miniature work and things. And then I was like, no, that they wrecked a real train to do this, unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was four hundred thousand dollars, and then all the elaborate effects, all the reshoots, and then paying all the extras per day, and then all the people that worked at the studio making like three and four hundred dollars a day, which was a lot of money back then. This thing ran over time. It ran over budget. I mean, it almost doubled its budget trying to get it going. And, and when it didn't make money, again, that's, that's what I say. It, his next deal with MGM like was very restrictive. Like for the next chunk of his career, it was very like, no, you will stay within these bounds, you know. And uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed that the, the artistic hubris of this, but that, that he didn't let it run wild. Like there's nothing in this that I feel like is like superfluous or anything like that. It's all very tidy. Like it works as a you know eighty minute narrative or whatever it is. With, you know, with when you cut out you know just the random scenes that are you know, nothing but you know, scenery and don't really tell anything of the story, I, I'm I was kind of blown away like at how tight this still worked. You know, and that you know they were. I mean, they, again, they were at a different era, but they were able to use appropriate era machinery to make this happen. And I don't know. It's, I, it's, it, I'm still blown away that someone said okay to all of this like they but but i i looked into it and i was like well but you know but buster keaton at the time was such a bankable star it would be like um if you gave jim carrey and in his heyday uh, i'm trying to think like i can't think of like modern comics that you know i don't think any of them really fit in this mold so carrie might be the last one i really know did you if you gave them like this unreal budget to make like you know just the the craziest zaniest thing they wanted to and and it didn't quite hit, you know, and, oh, what happens after that? Like, I think of, like, Carrie's, like, the cable guy. You know, he clearly yeah. had a lot of control over that. There's a lot of money in that one, and it didn't really work. But, you know, he bounced back pretty fast with some, you know, more studio-controlled pictures or whatever you want to say, and then, he, you know, he did a lot of other things, too. But, uh, yeah, but, you know, you just people are like, oh, that, that's such a neat thing. But, no, it's been going on forever. And specifically for this one, though, man, the thing that blew me away is – the doggone cinematography is unbelievable, Mike. Like Burt Haynes and Devereaux Jennings, who I had to look up and learn a little bit more about. Dev Jennings, I'd seen you know a lot of his work unbeknownst through the years. The the way that Keaton and his co-director Clyde Bruckman were able to get those guys to shoot such great wide angles 
but where you can still see faces on people, you still get a sense of the all the dust kicking up with the horses and all that stuff. It was really a feat at the time. Like I, I mean, again, it didn't work for people, but I, I can't imagine how someone could have walked out of this and felt like quote bored. Like, cause this movie is unbelievably fleet before you even like yeah. pick apart the story. Yeah. I, and like, yeah, the cinematography was just like breathtaking to me, especially like, because they're not just shooting on like a back lot with like the, the route, like the, uh, like a stationary train. Yeah. And they're just like trying to make it look like, no, they're shooting Real with trains. Sometimes the trains are going like clearly five miles an hour. And like, sometimes they speed it up. And sometimes it's like, no, the train's going five miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And then there's other times when the train is like full speed ahead, like throw all the coal in the train. We're going to go like at something like, 25 35 miles an hour and we're just going to keep filming um as they're like jumping between trains and and uh manipulating the trains um even like the more intimate stuff i Mm -hmm. think um like when he's in like the mansion of uh of the of the union generals and he's like sneaking around in the rain like all of this works really really well Mm -hmm. um yeah, so that cinematography, and it's all like iconic. Like we've seen, I think one of the like uh, the two iconic visuals of this is the train of the train and the bridge just exploding and imploding, but also just him uh, when they're trying to slow his train down, and there's the um, like the railroad spike and the train's going, and he just picks it up and throws a spike, and that's the other thing. Like it like nearly takes his head off, yeah. and he's like even though the train's going like five miles an hour, you're like oh my god, like is he gonna get it he's gonna get it and then it just like whizzes by his face and even like buster keaton looks like oh he's not acting there he's like oh god that almost hit me right yeah that's, um, that's the funny part of it right is that you can see the the actual danger happening you we talked about it in some of those other movies and things that have happened like there was a real sense that like, people got hurt doing this and people could have died doing it thankfully nobody did uh, by all the all the accounts and i think part of that is because they for the army scenes in particular, they got a lot of like the Oregon national guard to come in and do this. And at the time they would have still been horseback riding. Like they knew what they were doing. So that's what you do is you get the real people to like stunt for you. Nowadays that would never happen. Like you would never get that done. I feel like the last time that happened was like George Romero and Dawn of the dead. where They're just like, like I was listening to the commentary that as a side note and like the scene when they like fly over like bumpkin country area where the rednecks were all shooting the zombies in the commentary they're like they're like oh who are all these guys like where'd you get these extras like dad no that's like the national guard stationed in pittsburgh yeah we asked if they wanted to come around and they just like hell yeah they showed up with trucks and artillery and like all their guys and they showed up with like real weapons and they just like posed around and i'm like yeah you can't do that anymore like you just can't just be like hey can you can like for free like or not or like a very like nothing like production costs for them were low yeah, modest so like, fees or by, by, you, know, you feed them for the day like, and yeah yeah like uh you get a t-shirt and like a donut like that's pretty much what they paid extras on dawn of the dead and you yeah. just can't do that anymore and you and like but that authenticity really like comes through here mm-hmm. and i and i do and i was reading one of those those critic reviews where they were talking about how i think they said something like oh comedy and war, especially the Civil War, don't mix. Like, sorry, Mr. Keaton. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, I was trying, like you mentioned it earlier, I was trying to think about, well, like how how far was like the Civil War at this point? And I'm pretty sure like at this point, like the World War II was farther for us than like the Civil War was for them at this point. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm like there were definitely people who were still alive that fought in that war. And also like those sentiments 
didn't exactly go away yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you, even, think, you think about like Gone with the Wind is 14 years, 13, 14 years after this movie, you know, and it's that still hit a raw nerve as a book and as a movie. And so, I mean, that's subject matter that I don't know that ever. Well, and, and you know, if we look at it now with 2022 lenses, I mean, holy cow, right? Like it's a, we have a completely different perspective on it because that's what history allows you to have. Right. But in 1926, like I, I get that criticism that like you, you can't make a joke out of this. But and, and that's one of the, the things I'll say here, though, is and I think Buster Keaton is right about this, because I believe very much in the side of comedians that everything can be joked about. Like that's how you learn really to deal with things sometimes is we have to make a joke out of it. And what what this shows is not only is it an excessive film in terms of the way it was made and you know, all the stuff that went into it, man, but it's an excessive idea of what they go through to shut down this train. <laughs> Look at the damage that the, the army does to try to blow this train. Right. And I think there's, there's something else that's part of this that nobody's talking about is the Johnny character that Keaton plays is not someone that wants to join up. He doesn't want to be in the fight. He just wants to run his trains. Right. And the fact that he mm-hmm. you know gets made to pick that and ultimately he, you know, he takes advantage of it because he can't get uh, Mary Mack's character, the, the Annabelle Lee character, can't get her attention fully unless he's in the uniform, you know, is is a gag. But it's interesting to note that the main character does not want to be in the war, but he kind of gets thrown into it because, I mean, in reality, you didn't have a choice. Like you had to be sick and debilitated to not be a part of the war wherever you live. Yeah, and yeah, I and I love even just like the small details of like the narrative here, where it's like, oh, like you can't, um, you can't come back. Uh, I don't want to see you unless you're in uniform. Yeah. And then like they're all the gag of like, oh, next time you see him, oh, he's in a union uniform. Oh, and then like eventually he becomes like you know the, the general right. of of an army. But um, and 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 that's the other thing about Buster Keaton is the the complete lack of of title cards mm-hmm. that he uses. And I love like the pantomiming and, and like the interviews of like, of, of him, I guess, after when he retired and they're talking like in the sixties and fifties, when they're asking about, you know, his lack of, um, of title cards, he's like, no, you know, if the, if the standard picture used 200, we used 60 or 70, you know, we, mm-hmm. we wanted to get more across through pantomiming acting and just like big, big movements as opposed to relying on because i think he thought that using title cards broke the narrative where he was just like no we're gonna just minimize that and just use more of the visual style like it's a visual medium so we're, that's what, exactly what we're gonna use yeah he's not wrong and, by the um, way like if you if you're having to read through th- something can be a distraction for anybody even with movies you know today that are like more subtitled and everything there's a lot oh, of times yeah. like i'm i'm just ignoring the you know the subtitles uh, on something like it yeah. And sometimes the subtitles, like I think of Squid Games, like mm-hmm. it completely missed the culture of yeah. of uh, Korea, and and uh, and you and you lose a lot of the subtext if you don't speak the language. Because yeah. I, when I watched the even like the Eng- the English dub, apparently wasn't that great. So, but like something like that, I always try and watch it in its original language, mm-hmm. just because I think that's the respectful thing to do. Right. But but I think that idea works here where it can take you out and distract you. And I think it even makes the lack of title cards makes it way more accessible to the viewer. Cause you're just, you're just watching these unbroken shots. And it almost reminds me of like, uh, I think of like Mad Max Fury road mm-hmm. where there was like pretty much very little dialogue, but you 
just got the sense of the scene through the acting, the visuals, and the score. Which I guess I didn't watch the original score, um, but it's it's inter- it's like what we talk about with um, like Trip to the Moon mm-hmm. when like I think we watched it with different scores, and we it could you know entirely change your perception of how you take it mm-hmm. uh, and interpret the film. So, but I really appreciate that of Buster Keaton. This is, regardless of the score, you can you, we all get the general sense of what's going on and how he's feeling and what the general tone of the, of whatever film he's in is because he just is really big into like those close-ups, those wide shots with very like subtle details of, of, uh, of the nuance of like human language, then paired with these huge bombastic over the top stunts, which I thought like really works well. So well. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is that if you have a movie with big stunts, a lot of times the, the idea is you want the actors to try to play it under that right particularly in like dramatic narrative but in a comedic narrative they need to match the bigness of the explosion of the wreck and all that stuff like you go watch something like i'm thinking of something like cannonball run you know or something like that which just is a total spoof comedy you know or kentucky fried movie john landis you know and everybody is just being ridiculous in that movie because everything that's happening around them is ridiculous like it doesn't it doesn't exist in the real world what's amazing about this is that for the most part I mean, the the story of the guy and kind of his motivations and stuff is different, but all the big crazy stuff that you see in this movie happened. Like, that's what's amazing. It's like, this is actually real. Like, he took real things and showed them to people because there were there was no photographic evidence of that. It was people recalling it. It was, it was the author who had written a great memoir on it, uh, with, uh, William Pettinger. And, you know, credit to him that he had a great way with words and I I can't downplay how important that was that there was someone with the education and, and the tongue and the tone to be able to like capture that in the moment, you know, like um, education is in, in his time. And even in the time that this movie was made is not the way it was in our lifetimes, Mike, you know, where everybody is really sort of forced to learn how to read, write, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's still a lot of people who who, who miss on that, but in that time, I mean, you might have been one of like four people in your family or the only person in your family. Knows so the fact that there's a record of this is sort of amazing. Like, it's amazing this movie even exists, right? Because of the story, like that could have just been a folktale handed down through time. And and it more or less is, but I, I think it's neat that there's a, there's a source material and that he had something to draw from as part of it. The thing that I'll say about the, the score piece, like I, I, I saw it with those two scores in it and I watched even part of the scenes again, just with nothing. I thought well, if it was just completely silent, like how does it play? And unlike trip to the moon, which is like a different experience with that happening um, or the, the dying swan um, where that's a very different experience without any you know, sound or whatever. This one misses something without its scores to it. I'll say that. And, and it's worth it to go see that 26 score because again, the, just the rattling piano, like when the train comes off of the rails and blows to the bridge, it's somebody just raking the keys, like, you know, and it's exactly what you would say. Cause it's the sound effect of a piano. And uh, I don't know, again, it's sort of what I always uh, attach to like saloon music of the Westerns that I grew up watching and stuff like that. And I don't know, I, I dug it. I, I liked everything about it. And I, the, the lasting piece of this movie, um, for me is the fact that it had such a big scope, but it's telling a very simple story at its core. This is a guy trying to get the girl and 
it's playing on tropes that maybe we don't you know understand or agree with or whatever but in the time this would have this would have played like the audience would have bought this and that the the annabelle character doesn't want anything to do with somebody that's not going to get in the fight that's not going to you know take a stand one way or the other and the fact that this guy at different times is on both sides of this war is sort of amazing and you know at the very end of it he kind of feels dejected he looks like he's just going to be ringed out and that's when the general promotes him to general and he hands him the sword of that that officer that he knocked out and all this stuff and it's like this big like moment on his face and like oh i am liked i am and you know, wish he jumps off of her father's uh, porch and runs to him is it's hilarious like it's completely absurd but it's hilarious and i think about that and i go like that's no different than like the the uh plot of 500 rom-coms from the 80s it's the same thing and and i i think it's neat that you know you think anything's original and it, it is in some ways but there's always a root right and I, it's fun that that's the root of this big action movie is that it's really a cheesy little love story yeah and i even love the uh like like kind of this like the like the underlying too is like he all it's a dude who just loves his train and like I think there's the moment when she, and she's like, "Oh, you've rescued me," and you could see the moment of like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here." <laughs> Not just happenstance, like because yeah. the whole thing is they stole my train, and he literally runs after the train. And then it's like afterwards, like, "Oh, they have the girl I really like. Oh, yeah, that I should handle that too." But there's always like the underlying of like, "I need my train back. Like they stole, um, they stole my train, and I want my train back." Yeah, Johnny has two um, loves. And the first is the train, you know, mm-hmm. and the but second yeah, is Annabelle. First yeah. is the train. Yes, and probably <laughs> more, foremost is the train too. But he's willing to let that go for the the larger good, and that's I think that's the oh, that's yeah. the big you know part of this, right? Is that he's going to be willing to to make the sacrifice um, for the other, you know, to kill the the Texas. Um, as part of it because he, he you know he, different times he's a part of that train as well and i don't know i i think it's cool i mean it's funny though that again the central part of this is so much of a love story but it's really secondary to what the character wants he just wants that train and i really like how it's like you mentioned the book is told from the union perspective but this is he's like a quote unquote a confederate and i say quote unquote because he really has no loyalty to the Confederate cause. Like you said, he doesn't want to fight in this war. He just wants to ride his train around the South. No, he just wants to ride his train and be around like the train tracks. And it's it's funny just how I, I can see how people can miss because you're like, oh, why would you tell this Confederate story? Like they stood for evil stuff. And, and even like people might use that argument today. But it's like, no, he's not really. He just happens to be from the South. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't have any like patriotic duty to do this. It's literally, they stole my train and I want my train back. Right. Like, how dare they? And, um, and I think that makes it like a political, non-political, like you, there's no political stance on this. It's just like you damn Yankees and all oh, you, you damn grays. Like it's, that's the most political the movie gets. And yeah. I rightly so, because, you know, at this time, you know, birth of a nation was coming out and, mm-hmm. and intolerance, like what we were talking, but we almost talked about last week or last episode. And, um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I really love, and I, and, and I just keep thinking back as we talk about this more, I keep thinking more like the physical stunts, like the whole cannon bit. Yeah. I actually laughed out loud with the cannons when he shoots the cannon, it, he bends down, it almost hits him. And then, uh, the, he throws the cannon 
the cannonball out and then it explodes on the side of the uh on the on the side of the track like 50 yards away and i'm like oh that's not how cannons work but it's still hilarious Mm -hmm. um like the water spout when they just like take out the water spout and everyone's just getting doused with water um i think like the first bit of uh when he gets on like the train uh what is it like the the push trolley yeah yeah and and it goes in reverse yeah Yeah. it goes in reverse and then it goes off and then he it just yeah yeah, hand card that's it like i just keep thinking of all these like physical comedy bits of just Mm -hmm. of how simple they are and then but they work so well here and even just like all the reactions to everything but yeah no this was a uh, a solid pick jay i'm i'm glad that you were able to find you were finally able to see this uh this classic film from uh from this era oh yeah i mean and again like from my youth of watching a lot of looney tunes cartoons there's a lot there's a lot that bugs bunny borrows from buster keaton's whole thing anyway but this movie in particular like anytime the looney tunes are on a train track somebody's cranking that hand car they're doing this back and forth and all that like it's it's pretty amazing and uh i just the i think again i i'm mostly amazed at all the stuff that it took to make this thing and the fact that it didn't work at the time it, but has lasted the test of time. Like it's sort of like who gets the last laugh, right? Like he was right all along. And, um, you know, sadly it didn't, it, you know, it cost him a lot, but, uh, it, I, I, I dare say it was worth it though, because this is a classic movie. It's, and I'm glad I finally got to enjoy it and see where so many of these big, comedic tropes really find root again and i feel like this whole journey in a lot of ways is finding you know the roots of things that i i know from more you know my lifetime of film and uh it's it's neat to neat to see it and this is one i would definitely like recommend to folks like it, i mean one it's free it's out there but both these movies that we're all the movies we're talking about in this era are all like public domain at this point you know they're easy to find um, but this one's all over youtube and you can find it with the various scores too so it's, it's worth it's worth checking out and it's worth putting on like an actual big screen and letting it sort of exist and think like to yourself what the eight reels of this would have looked like and how people would have just been flabbergasted at what they saw yeah and yeah i can get into my closing thoughts of the general as well yeah again it's like the og like jackass like you can definitely tell especially having just recently seen jackass forever and like kind of going through like the last what 20 years of jackass you could really see like especially johnny knoxville's like inspiration for his stunts uh directly homaging him and doing direct stunts like throughout the works um and even just like pushing stunt work to a new level and and uh putting like physical comedy in there um and it's and it's fun seeing that and and you know I really had a great time with this film and the narrative of it um it was good to revisit it especially like the colorized version of it um so yeah this is definitely something that I think everyone should see I think it's super accessible to really anyone mm-hmm. um I could probably show my like 5-year-old nephew this and he would probably well, maybe I think if he had the attention span to sit still for eighty minutes, he'd probably enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and just be because I, I think it's it is very captivating and it speak it can speak to people on such like a very basic level of just like of awe in what they do because it is that mixture of like miniatures and practical and and uh, just really just really good physical comedy. So um, yeah, I recommend this movie too. Um, I guess if I were to go like the amateur tours rating, I'd give it um an 8.5 out of 10. And uh, I believe it on letterbox, I gave it uh, a four out of five. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just uh, because I think there were just some not not giving it a five just because there was some like narrative component components and I was like all right let's 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 get back to the train like uh, that's yeah. that's what I really want to see um, and if it was if it was on film strip I'd give it a lark popcorn so yeah I definitely 100 percent recommend this movie and this was a great pick yeah I'm I'm right there in the middle and all that with you it's an eight out of ten you know and and it would be a large popcorn on film strip so I you know I'm glad glad we got to talk about it and. You know, we got one more stop in the silent film era here uh, as we head to the 1930s and we'll get another classic performer. I guess that's all we want to tease for the 1930 film. Uh, but that, the one that we're going to talk about only came out five years after uh, this one. But unlike this one was heralded in its day. So, yeah, I was going to say yeah. major success, yeah. major success. Yeah. Um, and we can get into that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that concludes this episode. Uh, Jay, would you like to do your plugs for all your shows? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, f- uh, the big one is, of course, Filmstrip. Go to filmstrippodcast.com. You'll find a link to all the places you can listen to the Filmstrip podcast where Ron, Lindsay, myself, and a cavalcade of guests review movies of all kinds. We've got 300-plus episodes in the archives. We're available on Apple, Google, Spotify, all those places. Give us a five-star review. Share the show. We appreciate it. You can follow the show's social media at FilmStripPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those kind of things. So really appreciate the support and uh, having a lot of fun uh, going through these movies and uh, talking about it with you. Awesome, yeah. And uh, as always, guys, you can follow this show on Twitter at AltoursPod. You can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, re- now recently we're on Spotify too, so uh, I feel like that makes the show a little bit more accessible. I know I listen, I've been switching to uh, from iTunes to um, to Spotify, so yeah, hopefully you guys can find us a little bit easier. And uh, with that, we will see you next time.